Isn't she an idiot? Yes. <laughs> Welcome back to Alpha Bunga Bunga, or BungaCast, if you prefer, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. I'm Alex Hochuli in São Paulo, Brazil. This podcast is also Philip Cunliffe in the UK. Hi. And George Hoare, also in the UK. Hey. So um, we're trying to improve this podcast. So um, we've we've hired some consultants um, to, to let we, and we, we didn't know whether to go for one of the big three um, strategy consultants or if we need more of an audit. And get one of the big four uh, boys in, maybe maybe call in uh, PwC or something um, to go through our books and figure out um, well wh- how to uncook them. Maybe <laughs> they're definitely not going to go through the books, but maybe podcasting is one of the few industries that would actually benefit. I think this podcast would actually probably benefit from some professional managerial um class consultancy outsourcing intervention mm. perhaps one of the few industries that would i'm not sure you'd agree with that when they come in and they suggest efficiencies and removing one third of the workforce um <laughs> the, okay, just, let's just AI automate this thing the, yeah replace <laughs> one third of the workforce with an ai and so we have uh alex in sao paulo george in london and uh philbot in in the, the ether on the internet somehow somehow i think that i would be the least susceptible to automation and um i think in fact if anybody was be most susceptible to automation it would probably be alex in fact who would be the most easily automated of our um of our illustrious Um, of our illustrious panel phil i think we should continue this conversation offline um this kind of sensitivities (laughs) around uh this with with the current audience um no alex you're irreplaceable uh at least until uh, improves considerably in fact at some point we'd like you to prove that you aren't already an ai because sometimes i've had my suspicions but anyway um as listeners might Look, have inferred the thing is, you know, as they say you know bullshit in bullshit out so i'm only <laughs> i'm only responding to the the shit that gets thrown to me so if i if i output um, mediocre content it's only it's only a function of the mediocre inputs yeah that's exactly how an ai would respond um we have to restore your filter to make sure that you start having proper responses anyway as listeners might have in, inferred uh we're going to be talking about outsourcing and if listeners do have any suggestions about which of the big three big four big five whatever big number it is now they would suggest that might help improve our um, performance. By all means, make a suggestion, make an offer, make a pitch, send us a PowerPoint slide deck. We will not look at it and we will not pay you, um, but we might be interested in what you have to say. In fact, we won't be interested in what you, have, what you have to say about this, but send us your pitches anyway. So we're talking about outsourcing today and this is stimulated. Um, I mean, it's less about the kind of the, um, you know, PowerPoint slide deck aspect of uh, outsourcing and more about the politics of outsourcing, because what's interesting at the moment is that there is seems to be a 
a turn away from outsourcing in the context of the broader systemic changes that um, have been ongoing for some years and which are the both the inspiration and the content and the theme of this podcast, which is the end of the end of history. So the broader question is, is outsourcing coming to an end? And is the end of outsourcing part of the end of the end of history? And I mean, there's a you know, there's a few uh, there's a few kind of um, aspects to this debate, and I suppose it's anchored um, most significantly in terms of two uh, recent books. Um, one by um, two people from, or at least one uh, economist from UCL, Mazzucato, and a colleague Collington, who wrote a book called The Big Con about outsourcing and its limits and um, as the name suggests, it's skeptical of outsourcing, but also a book by Michael Forsyth um, about McKinsey coming to town. Sorry, by um, Bogdanovich and Forsyth, McKinsey comes to town. But there's been a lot of uh, debate around those two books and even um, a response in the Financial Times um, kind of defending the profession from a member of the um, a member of the Management Consultants Association in London. And listeners can find that letter defending the profession in the um in the show notes called Groundless Assertions About a Trusted Profession. So we want to talk a bit about the politics of um, of outsourcing. But before we get into that, um, I'm curious to hear from my fellow, my fellow podcasters whether they have any experience of this industry, either working for it or by um, having failed to be recruited to it um, as members of elite universities where, well, I say elite universities, um, George went to an elite university. I guess Alex went to some kind of university, but they did recruit heavily from from these universities. And it's interesting to hear how far this industry option was tempting or attractive um, to podcasters before they became podcasters. Are podcasters just failed consultants? Tell us. Yeah. I mean, that that is exactly what I was going to say. Every podcaster is a is a failed management consultant. I mean, I, I can't deny that it, it, it doesn't hold some appeal, the idea of um, probably specifically management consultancy. You go in, you, you know, if you're relatively good on PowerPoint, you create some triangles, some two by two matrices, you know, you just you just talk some a cool few tables, stuff. in other words. Yeah, you have like some some post-it notes and some sharpies, and you get everyone together, and you have some some coffee and some biscuits, and then you're just like, yeah, I've I've I'm going to hit you with some some new strategy, guys, and then you just as soon as that PowerPoint hits the desk, you walk out, and you don't care how it's implemented or anything like that. No, I should um, I should say some of my best friends are, are consultants. I know many consultants. <laughs> um, I I I were I went into kind of discussing this with some like some like okay there are some reasons why you would you could in a business context have consultancy um and it kind of be somewhat useful if you have short-term capacity needs if you have some expertise that you don't have that you don't want permanently if you have tough decisions or messages that you don't want to have um on your head these are reasons why you could have consultants in um i mean yeah so that's that's my sort of um starting point with it um i wonder if you could become a podcast consultant go in to uh I'm sure yeah. those exist i'm sure those yeah i'm sure exist. they do if if you are one and you're listening um yeah hello um alex what about you though well i mean yeah i should say also we're not talking about just outsourcing writ large but specifically the role of you know outsourcing in the public sector and then the role that consultants play in it i think um but you know i mean i have i have been known to consult 
Um, I, I've, I've, I've dabbled in, in consulting. Um, did you, I, did you get paid for this is what we want to know? Well, obviously. Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to do consulting for free. That's what is that? Um, so how many people did you fire? No, see, I didn't actually work on any kind of so much at the, at the kind of hard edge of these things. It's more just doing research for people. Um, because you know, businesses, even big businesses um, don't have the capacity or don't have the desire to do it in-house. And very often it's just about responsibility avoidance. So a company wants to, some person at some level of management wants to um, introduce a decision, but they need some proof. And so they go to consultants and then the consultant then hires me and goes, well, do you want to, you know, we need, we need to show that this is the right course of action. So basically it's, um, you know, it's research uh, it's research to show rather than research to know. So you're not necessarily trying to find out the truth. You're just trying to find evidence to back up someone's decision, which they can then show their boss and go, hey, look, my decision's the right thing to do. I have science backing it up. So a lot of it is is that kind of thing. I even have the experience of being, um, when I was working in a, in a large company of um, in doing research, of having to create for a skincare brand some sort of um, skin index, which you know, really should have been scientists doing it. That sounds like, like the most training. racist, Vargas, no, no. <laughs> Brazilian thing I've ever heard. It wasn't in Brazil. Um, and also it was uh, it was not, not not a skin color index so much as a skin hydration index, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and, you know. And which, ra- which races have the best hydration? No, I don't think there was no, there was no racial component. <laughs> but, you know, I'm sure that would exist too. They maybe do that kind of consulting for um, I don't know. I was going to name a country. I was trying to think of like a, a, a no, don't, country don't would, name would a do country. that, but like, let's not do this. Um, <laughs> but anyway, so it's it's that kind of stuff where you're thinking there is just no truth being sought out here. It's just kind of creating bullshit, but having plausible deniability. And I'm sure that's a lot of it. Not all of it. Yeah. But it's part of it. It's interesting though, because it already makes me think. So generally the tenor of these debates, and I mean, so for instance, um, one of the articles I wanted to discuss is a piece in the London Review of Books by a professor um, at, of international politics um, from my discipline, Lala Khalili. And the whole kind of tenor of her piece is the the cruel kind of ruthlessness associated with the efficiency savings that come with consultancy consultants to be brought in and how much how what a part of neoliberalism consultancy is, what an embedded component of it is. But then you know, at the same time, it goes hand in hand with this inability to, for corporations themselves to manage their own workforces or to make the kinds of tough decisions themselves. And so that would seem to be at odds with the image of consultancy as kind of these ruthless freebooters, right? Um, if the age of neoliberalism is supposedly capitalism red in tooth and claw, but you know, you're um, you don't have the cojones to kind of uh, manage your own corporation to the extent that you need to bring in these um, middlemen in order to tell you to you know to give up to back up the choices you've probably already made yourselves because you know you don't have the authority to run your own labor force and your own company without being propped up by McKinsey. Um, you know, it suggests perhaps the picture of neoliberalism is different from the one that's being cast in these. Um, well, arguments about outsourcing. Yeah, I mean, you don't need to hire an assassin if you're prepared to to kill people with your bare hands. If if it if that makes sense, like the I guess the idea of the consultant is that ruthless come in, fire a third of the people, get out. I mean, 
in what situation or what organizational logics are required where that is a useful role. So it would be, it's almost like it's a sign of weakness or a sign of the, there's an inability or, or a lack of desirability of taking ownership of, of decisions. And I think that's particularly the case in, in civil service or in, you know, perhaps the, the third sector where that's, you know, that kind of cutthroat capitalist competition logic isn't quite there so that's where you have the consultant come in um not because they're gonna be doing something that's terribly like um harsh and ruthless but just because what is the incentive for taking on any um responsibility within that organization um there isn't really one so just you know but there's... kind of distance yourself from it why, why why would you not but there's a difference from an assassin hiring an assassin right um and somebody who isn't an assassin hiring an assassin. You hire an assassin if you can't do, you know, if you need, if you're not, you know, like an assassin. Whereas the case is if you're some kind of, um, you know, uh, chief executive, and, you know, why would you need chief executive of a large corporation? Why would you need to bring in consultants to tell you to fire a third of your workforce? And, I mean, we're talking in, we're talking in kind of generalities here, but I think it does raise the point. So I can see the logic as you say, George, with respect to kind of public sector, um, the public sector where they bring in consultants in order to in kind of reorganize around efficiency principles to make efficiency savings, to enhance productivity in the public sector around market-based logics and what have you. But, you know, consultants are not just in the public sector. Um, they've buried their kind of their little, they've buried their claws into deep into um, the corporate world as a whole, and they're a significant part of the corporate world. But before we get into it more, I would like to you um, did either of you kind of want to be consultants when you left university? I mean, George, Alex says he's worked kind of part time or um, uh, kind of occasionally ad hoc and ad hoc basis for consultancy. What about you, George? Yeah, I mean, it's um, one of the options, right? You have the the investment banking management consultancy these are the ones these are the things if you if you want to uh, make that make that money but i guess one of the um and of, and it is part of the management the big management consultancy business models is like they will burn you out in 2 years they you know they they do have a very um triangular structure and they will work you very hard so if you're a junior person looking to go into that industry i guess you have to be a bit of a glutton for punishment you have to be you know maybe i was just a bit too um a bit too lazy and i thought oh, i would be kind of kind of good to wear a you know to wear a suit and get paid a lot of money but ultimately why don't i just continue studying that seems a lot easier so that's what i you know that's what that's what i did and you know i guess distance can judge me for my my life choices accordingly I thought it was interesting in the piece that I already mentioned, um, the LRB essay, which listeners can find in the show notes by Lila Khalili. She mentions how the the kind of the lifestyle of the elite university um, corresponds or overlaps significantly with the lifestyle of the early kind of recruits to the um, consulting industry. So where they get kind of um, in terms of the numbers of hours work, the kinds of the socialization um the point being, I suppose, that the detachment from the ordinary kind of um, workplace is also part of what consultants do. 
And so the campus kind of lifestyle and the campus socialization is also preparation for this workforce that's going to be kind of inserted into all these different contexts, industrial, um, corporate and what have you. There is this idea, I guess, that you're kind of free floating and superior. You need you need to know better than anybody that you might consult for what their business is. You need to have clearer thinking and be smarter and you know, if you're prepared to have a couple of years of continuing having like all-nighters and essay crises and, and that sort of thing, then maybe this is, you know, it it can be it can be kind of sold as a more intellectually demanding version of investment banking and not quite as well paid, but that's the, you know, the, it has that similar sort of um, continuation in terms of you have like a, an intake of particularly a larger management consultancy, quite a few people. And, you know, that's probably part of the the appeal in the way that it's um, pitched to, to, I guess, undergraduate students particularly. One of the, the kind of the way in which this debate is being had out is definitely with respect to the big four, big three, whatever they are. You know, the McKinsey's of the world, Booz Allen and Hamilton, Bain Consulting Group and what have you. So, I mean, those are the kind of the organizations, the firms that are in the firing line within this debate. Um, but outsourcing, such as it is in the context of neoliberalism, in which certain kinds of both corporate and public services are handed over to um, services which are outside those particular uh, those particular organizations, by way of gain of getting greater efficiency, which is usually the rationalization and justification for it, is not restricted to you know, to the McKinsey's of the world, but also happens a lot with the um, with the charity sector. And so I wondered if our resident charity guy had anything to offer on this score. Uh, I think you might be talking about me. Um, well, I guess, yeah, you know, it, it might be useful to kind of go through a bit of the history um, of like the different sorts of consultancy that they've, they've been. And this is taken from and regular listeners will know that I do very much enjoy a table, but it's taken from a table in the um, Mazakatu and Collington book. And so I think it's just useful to put this in into its context and, and you sort of see it kind of comes back to the charity sector maybe towards the end. But their idea is that there's been basically five phases of, of consultancies. The first one was strategy consultancy. And so this was 1900s to 1930s. And examples like McKinsey, Boston Consulting Group or BCG, Bain, these all started them. And these were specifically like scientific management and cost uh, accounting approaches. So those were like, those might seem like very um, uh, phrases, which listeners haven't heard of at all, but scientific management, this was a, this was kind of a big deal um, at the time, um, Taylorism and all this sort of stuff. And then it was only post-war so in the 60s and 70s, you had uh, accountancy um, consultancy. So this is EY, Deloitte, PwC, KPMG. And these are kind of auditing clients and providing that objectivity. Then it changed in the 80s and 90s. It was IT consultancy. So that was computerization and need for connectivity through firm growth is the way that they characterize it. And there are IBM, Oracle, uh, Cisco, all these sorts of uh, consultancies. And it's only in 1990s and 2000s, they they argue that you really see the peak of outsourcing consultancy. So these are kind of big publicly traded corporations like Serco and Sodesco and Atos and ISS in the UK. Listeners might have others in other contexts. Um, and these are the ones who are taking those big public sector contracts and delivering those. 
and then you get to kind of the uh, the noughties and the the tens um and this is kind of more boutique firms they say so they list a couple that i'd never heard of putnam associates maybe they're kind of social capital consultancy and vivid economics um <clears throat> and those are much smaller and that's i guess when with the professionalization of the charity sector in this country at least when you could see the movement more of um third sector consultancies so i think that's kind of useful to, to lay that out because it does show that one thing that's kind of interesting about this kind of turn against outsourcing is this isn't the peak necessarily or isn't the first moment of um, outsourcing like it's actually a little bit belated if we are correcting that turn against outsourcing because that was in the 90s and noughties so what explains that kind of belated turn against it is i guess a different question what strikes me is the fact that the you know the, i mean there's kind of a, a right wing and a left wing version of this and we'll talk about a bit more about this in due course but one of the debates in the uk at the moment is um the way in which charities for instance are responsible for sex education in schools and this is um you know seen as a it's been kind of picked up by um the right wing of the Tory party, but also um, this, you know, the government itself has been, is under pressure to take control, I suppose, of what's being taught in schools on the matters of sex education. For the left, obviously, it's kind of seen as a contrived culture war, um, something which the right has manufactured out of nowhere in order to distract attention from deeper issues. But the truth is it has serious kind of, um, you know, it has serious it's roiled up kind of serious popular opposition. But what's very striking about it is that the parents, there was a case in which one of the parents wanted to gain access to what was being taught to their kids in school, and they weren't allowed to see it by virtue of the fact that it was seen as commercially sensitive information. Um, and there you had, but this is a charity, mind you, which is provide, you know, which has been contracted by the government to provide a certain aspect of public education in Britain's schools. And there you had a very sharp kind of um demonstration of that neoliberal logic but in the context of what would be a woke you know effectively um i mean this is part of the debate is like it's a woke charity that is um, pushing a particular agenda um in um in britain schools anyway it's so you know i suppose you have kind of a right-wing version of being against outsourcing and outsourcing of education on particularly on certain kinds of questions and you have a left-wing version of it which is stop these um you know stop these uh kind of parasitic middlemen being inserted into our to make efficiency gains in our nhs and our welfare state stop them slashing our welfare state and between those two kind of um angles into those two slices of the debate it seems to me that probably a lot is lost but before yeah. we get yeah i just had a, a reflection on that i guess you could kind of call it uh or the left critique is around economic outsourcing so you know basically as you were saying the these um you know charities for example come to to replace the state come to uh, like undermine the um, assumption that people might have that the state should provide services at least this, this applies in the, the British context. But in the right-wing critique, it's more the moral outsourcing. So the abdication of responsibility of, of the state. Um, sex education is a good example. It's like, well, this should be something, the conservative like view of education, this should be something that, well, not every conservative would say this, or not every Tory, but maybe every conservative, if not every kind of neoliberal Tory would say, you know, the state should articulate a set of um, uh, things, values, knowledge that, 
children should learn. And if you abdicate the responsibility by getting charities in to deliver this, you know, what's, you know, what's, what are you kind of for? So maybe that's but the conservative, the conservative case would be homeschooling. And that's a classically American thing, but there's more and more of it in the UK now as well. Well, I mean, I think the, the, I mean, the case of education, and as this applies for, I guess, all kind of cultural matters, is that it's a bit of a soft case, and you can see the political valences kind of quite clearly. When you get into the kind of hard at stuff of it, of, um, you know, aspects of the <clears throat> state running of um, industries or of um, core aspects of supporting the economy, um, rather than something which is, to, to a certain extent, re- removed, like education, certainly sex education, which is... Um, Rather it's no entirely the other way around. It's let, entirely let me, the other way around. Let me, let me finish my point. No, because... but let, let me make, because you're framing it like in a way which under, undercuts your point, right? The point no, is no, that my those point is, I haven't made it yet. Remote, but remote bureaucracies, right, are very much not at the forefront of people's minds. Whereas what their kids are being taught in school is very immediate, right? That's There's a difference. So but it's not the cultural, it's not soft. The, the hard stuff is the running of, of the economy, right? Something like sex education is is peripheral. So when it comes to the kind of commanding Relative heights of the to economy what? and what's doing, the commanding heights of the economy, not um, not issues to do with uh, not issues to do with sex ed, which you know it like is kind of neither here nor there. Even though people care about it and they see it, citizens see it, but we're not interested in ordinary citizens here. The question is what's going on. With yeah, you who, aren't. No, you aren't because you're an who, AI. <laughs> but those who hold power, right? So I think we need to be kind of distinguish these things. Um, one, what might, of might be a popular concern and what actually is kind of determining in how society is shaped in a more substantial way. And there, there's a, there, so there's a, the, there's a kind of the critiques of outsourcing and particularly the role of consultants, as such as in the two books that we've already kind of made reference to is an issue of corruption, right? And there is, a right-wing critique of that, which is basically kind of the a free market has never been tried kind of critique, which is that all these forms of outsourcing end up with an intermet and uh, you know outsourcing to services where you still have a, a lot of regulation because they still need to be regulated, but there's a huge amount of you know funds channeled to these private companies. Um, it's unaccountable and so on, and so you have a right-wing critique of that, which is basically like this intermeshing of of state and and private uh, capital is inefficient, unproductive, unaccountable, and so on. Um, but with the with the angle being basically you should privatize a property, right? Stop doing this outsourcing and having to regulate, just outsource it and have genuine competition providing public services. And that, that will resolve the issue. I think that isn't, you know, that isn't possible. Um, that isn't even realistic. Um, but, but then that, you know, then it, that leaves you open to the kind of left-wing critique, which is rather different, which is one which we've already hinted at, which is basically, wait, why is the state doing all this outsourcing? It's just crony capitalism. It's also corrupt, but the state should just be providing these services directly rather than having these interlopers brought in. Hmm. I'm, that's in, uh, so, okay. I, I mean, what you were saying there made, made me think that actually, how about this is the, the distinction between the different sorts of um, critiques of outsourcing. On the one hand, you have, like private appropriation of resources, like, um, like why should we pay, pay these bloody consultants? That is the right wing. The, hear me out and then you might disagree. That's the right wing um, critique. The conservative critique is what I call the moral outsourcing, like the state should take responsibility for education, but that's maybe that's quite narrow and only really applies or applies best in education. The left wing critique is something that we've kind of mentioned already, but it's like what happens is through the use of consultants, it's not 
private appropriation of resources, which is the problem, but weakening the state. So these consultants come in and they chip away at the state and they make the state bad. And so maybe those are the three different sorts of critiques. There's a fourth one, but I, which I um, would say would be my critique. But is that about right, or have I misunderstood this? Well, so I, think, I, would, I mean, I would just say that the, like you know, the conservative critique applies when it's conservatives talking about issues like education, where they're more critical of the market or kind of pseudo market aspects. But when it comes to the economy, they're kind of all in on the market, right? And I think that's the that's the that's the issue. It depends what sector or issue you're talking about. I'm not sure. So I think we're we're getting a bit too loose and slipshod. Um I think there is, first of all, I wouldn't take Alex's macho commanding heights of the economy thing. I think the um you know, the idea that education is something soft, namby-pamby, rather than something fundamental and, you know, also very political. What is it that the state decides is the thing that is going to be taught to children seems to me, a, you know, kind of... Well, seems, seems to me as the guy who works in education, who's like... Yeah, right. <laughs> but It seems to me, I don't work in, I don't teach school kids, but the point is, right, it doesn't seem to me like an incidental thing, right, compared to oh, big questions of how industry is organized at the national level. Um, public school education seems to me fairly fundamental. Now, that said, right, there are some other elements to it. I think, I mean, I don't think a conservative would, particularly on matters of sex education, I think it would leave most conservatives fairly squeamish. And like I say, this debate in the UK at the moment seems to be propelling more people into kind of... Um, skepticism and hostility of public education. Um, it seems to inflate the significance of private education or the appeal of it, as well as homeschooling and whatnot, particularly you know, in light of um, the schools being shut down during lockdown and general public skepticism towards the teachers' unions at the moment. Right. So all that is part of the background. If there's a social democratic view of uh, providing education that would, or hostility to outsourcing education, that would be a social democratic view, right? that the state is responsible for socializing our children and for providing certain kinds of public values and, you know, um, telling, teaching them about sex education, that would be a basic kind of, um, you know, view of the old fashioned left. Um, and so it's ironic, right? Because view. Yeah. That they're the conservatives today, the social Democrats, you could say. Sure. Sure. But, you know, I suppose that need, you know, it's useful to specify that, but also it's ironic because, the left is kind of, um, you know, defending the outsourcing in this case, in the case of these charities in the UK at the moment, right? So, I mean, it's kind of just to illustrate the mangle, right? And so, you know, as far as it goes, you know, and I think if we talk loosely about conservative with respect to outsourcing state functions to do with the economy or to do with industrial policy or to do with social policy, again, that's not so clear, right? Because that could be a question of, um, you know, is that a free market view or a conservative view? Um, and I think there's probably lots of skepticism, again, from conservative conservative voters, conservatives about outsourcing in that basic sense. It'll be kind of a few kind of cranky Thatcherite nerds in think tanks and so on who would be the most boosterish or enthusiastic about the possibilities for introducing um, or reorganizing certain state services or public services through consulting and getting consultants to come in and, um, you know, kind of uh, offer efficiency gains. So I think it's worth perhaps being a bit more specific about what we mean when we say, you know, is this left? Is this right? Is this conservative? Is it free market? Is it liberal, social democratic, whatever? So anyway, with that, with that kind of um, 
with that caveat, I suppose, um, it's worth asking a bigger question, which is what is driving the turn against outsourcing at the moment? Um, because it seemed to me it was something for a very long time that was essentially taken for granted. It wasn't, there wasn't, there wasn't a kind of a situation in which you would, um, there would be any kind of pub, any public resource that you could draw on to say that outsourcing in this context is a bad idea. I'm, Governments of both left and right would outsource. I know the universities I've worked for have outsourced. Um, what is it that suddenly turned? Because it seems to me the politics is about more than these two books. Yeah. I mean, I have an answer to this, which I think Phil will like and Alex won't like. And it's basically Brexit because Brexit has revealed that we have the responsibility to kind of take control of the state. So there is, you know, I actually kind of do think that there is a um, an effect here, which is like, if talking about outsourcing is really like talking about the state at one level of remove, it's like, well, actually, do we want to have the state take responsibility for its own kind of actions? Or do we want it to be like outsourced and, and um, you know, kind of put onto consultants or, or not? And I would say that, you know, the benefit of this, um, this Brexit perspective is that it locates the ultimate source of outsourcing, not in the wrongs of the consultancy industry, but in the weaknesses of the state. And that's a point I think we can return to, but yeah, that's my, you know, if you've, if you've only got one answer it, 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 to every question, it kind of increases your creativity. I'm in, willing to buy that. Questions. I'm willing to buy that in, in, in terms of the UK, but yeah. if the turn is broader than that, then that doesn't really explain it. So I'm not, unless I'm not entirely sure it that it started in the UK. Hmm. Unless the UK, unless everybody everywhere thinks that Brexit has well, some, this is, some this is very and... speculative. I, I, I don't, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if anyone's going to buy that. Um, or, or any case, we don't have a, a, a way to prove whether that's true right at this moment. So obviously it's part of a, to a certain extent, the kind of rollback against neoliberalism, or at least a whole thing of the kind of outward neoliberal um, kind of uh, tendency, you know, of kind of, um, you know, kind of privatizations have been halted. Have things been retaken back into public ownership? No, they haven't. But, you know, it, and a bit like with de the supposed deglobalization, the question about how much deglobalization there's been, but there's been the, the, the kind of... Um, you know, the, the kind of outward energy of kind of ever expanding, you know, dropping trade barriers, for example, um, has also halted. And I would see this as part of a similar movement um, where outsour outsourcing is maybe like, OK, maybe there's this has gone too far, but without seemingly to be too much rollback either. And I think part of the reason for that, and this will, I think, to be proved to be a very genuine issue, which will, I think, be intractable and why we won't get very far for a while Um in, even in terms of um, kind of rebuilding a, 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 a capacitated state, if you can say that, um, which is basically that, you know, the, the neoliberal period has seen an increase in the scope of the state, the state getting involved in ever more areas of life, um, while the scale of the state has been decreased. And the scale, I don't mean just in absolute GDP 
uh, as a proportion of GDP, because in fact, that has increased in most places. But, you know, fewer civil servants, fewer people kind of working on things. And what you have, I think, and most fundamentally, is a de-skilling of um, civil service, right? So the state, if even if you said, hey, the state shouldn't be outsourcing um, this project of building railways, it should be building railways itself or whatever. Um, the state doesn't have that capacity. There aren't the people with the knowledge how to do it. And even if the state does try to do it, they'll probably do a bad job of it because you just don't have the personnel at this at the moment. So what you have throughout the whole neoliberal period is a demoralization of, of the public, right? Especially the early neoliberal phase, which was all about defunding and that defunding meant that things, public services ran badly. And then people had less and less belief in public services because they were like, well, this is really badly run. Why would you give them more money? And this kind of, even in a post-neoliberal phase, you can see this um, per being perpetuated to a certain degree where if you, even if you want the state to take on more responsibility for itself in directly running things, the fact is that it doesn't have the capacity. It doesn't have the personnel. So even if it tries to do it, it'll probably fuck it up. And it leads to a further demoralization. So... I don't mm. so the the way out of this is is um I, you know I don't think it's so simple. Well, I think this is an important point, right? That one of the impacts of consultancy services is unlearning by not doing, as Mazzucato and Collington put it in their book. So it's like, yeah, it, it's a deliberate de-skilling and demoralization and disempowerment of civil servants, um, of you know state bureaucrats of of all levels. So it's a kind of that is one of the consequences that if you do that for long enough, then and this would be my other point, when COVID comes around, you have this real illustration of the, like, it's now becomes clear what is the consequence of all of this outsourcing and de-skilling and disempowerment of civil servants. Um, and in the UK, at least, it was, you know, the, the test and trace system that we had in place, it was half filled by by um, Deloitte staff, so, you know, a million mm. pounds a day was, was going on this because it it, it, that is and that is like not an accidental but that's a very kind of foreseen consequence of um previous waves of outsourcing so we're kind of you know we're paying the piper now so i don't know if that what extent that yeah. kind of belated re re realization or illustration has but yeah. now people are you know brexit times covid you know that's the magic um formula maybe so i think i mean it's it's certainly like there's greater there's greater awareness in many dimensions of uh, public discussion and civic life about the role of the state, right? Whether that's kind of, um, uh, you know, I mean, that was, that's been kind of put on them. It's been put on the con kind of uh, put in thrust into political debate by populist insurrections in left behind regions, um, the industrial industrial competition with China, geopolitical competition with China, the need to secure kind of um, minerals for the green energy transition, the green energy transition itself requiring, uh, I suppose, you know, industry, um, at least clean, you know, or sources of clean energy. And so it's kind of this whole debate about rebalancing inevitably, you know, kind of away from towards manufacturing and I suppose um, tangible non-tradable goods to, or more tangible non-tradable goods, inevitably calls into question our reliance on people who are, you know, who work in kind of intangibles in the service sector. And the most kind of quintessential suited service sector you could imagine would be the consultants, right? So I think it's part of that, you know, it's kind of, um, their role is kind of exposed as part of this great wrenching um I don't want to say transformation because, as Alex indicates, it's not really a transformation in a meaningful sense yet, perhaps, but certainly kind of a refocusing of attention, 
and then they get exposed by that. I mean, that's the important part of it, right? Um, and link to that, I guess, as well, is that it's also, as George indicates, there's an element of it by which it's kind of a, um, there's a covert critique of lockdown in there as well. I don't know if this has been repeated in other countries and perhaps, um, you know, perhaps listeners can tell us, but certainly in the UK, it's the way in which the critique of lockdown has been aired. So rather than a kind of a outright critique of the policy, the policy is criticized in terms of corruption. Or we misspend money on these kinds of parasitic, louche figures who just kind of acid strip and uh, loot. Um, and so that is, it's kind of, you know, it's a kind of an indirect critique. Well, and that makes it, me... Isn't it, isn't it not a critique at all? Because, I mean, it isn't a critique of well, lockdown. Well, that's what it's I was a, kind of most getting... Most of it's a critique uh, of, of things like track and trace and other things which weren't yeah, locked down. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, I mean, I think it's kind of, so to that extent, I think it's kind of a, um, you know, it's a politics of corruption, essentially. And this is something that we've talked about quite a bit on this podcast, is how misdirected and how dangerous kind of, you know, a politics of corruption that seems so appealing that you criticize wasted expenditure, that you criticize um, nepotism, that you criticize elite connections by which certain contracts always go to the same people. You know, there's a whiplash in that kind of politics that we've discussed. We just, you know, we discussed in our book, but we've also talked about it in various um, pod discussions that we've had. And it strikes me that there is kind of a part of the turn against consultancy has this feel yeah. of a kind of a populist, a populist and anti-corruption politics, which has identified a certain kind of segment to target. And it seems to me like, you know, there are potential dangers in the way that plays out. Um, so kind of to perhaps mine this a bit more, um, it's worth talking through, I think, a bit the um, the different kinds of uh, critiques or um, buried critiques that are offered in Lale Kalili's essay. Um, so she talks through a number of stories in the kind of classic, in the classic kind of mold of the LRB essay. She talks through a number of kind of stories, uh, talks around the review of a book through offering a number of stories, some of which are personal and some of which are kind of extended anecdotes by way of illustrating certain kinds of arguments. So she talks through the state capture by the Gupta family of um, South African government and industries, and it's her phrase rather than mine, state capture. We've spoken, we've had episodes, uh, listeners will find this in the show notes, we've had an episode on uh, the question of state capture in South Africa. But that McKinsey was a very important, kind of helped to facilitate the Gupta family's um, deep um, embedding itself in all these different kind of aspects of the South African state. So one is state capture. Another is... Um, the origins of the, you know, another kind of type of criticism is the origins of the uh, consulting industry in scientific management, in Taylorism. So as a new mode of control of the workforce and the labor force. A third strand of critique is the fact that the industry has also been very close to the deep state and that there's a lot of overlap with um, particularly the power elite of the Cold War era, advising intelligence agencies and advising various kinds of counterinsurgency campaigns, especially in Southeast Asia. And then another strand of critique is the fact, and this I thought was intriguing, mainly because um, there was a potential contradiction that Khalili didn't draw out, but it booms, like, or, you know, you see growth of reliance on consulting during the Trump era as well. 
And that makes sense, right? Um, as part of the project, you know, the fact that the Trumpians can't rely on um, the state, the established state, to fulfill their aims. Um, and I guess as part of Steve Bannon's um, crypto-Leninist claim that he was setting out to destroy the administrative state, the Trumpians rely on outsourcing in order to get the job done. Um, and then very amusingly, um, Khalili mentions the fact that there's a mini insurrection within McKinsey from young, youthful consultants, anti-Trumpian consultants who didn't want to be involved in, um, in advising the Trump government about what to do about migration. It'd be interesting to hear whether or not they've changed their mind about the Biden administration doing the same thing and more. Um, my guess is probably they're not kind of throwing their toys out the pram at this point. So there's a number of different strands to the critique. And one of the, I suppose, one of the question I'd like, you know, one of the things to think about is the contradiction between um, the fact that the, you know, the overlap between the deep state, the reliance of the Trumpian, or one critique is it's deep, you know, kind of it's an out, it's an outgrowth of the deep state. Another critique is the Trumpians use it against the deep state, and then another critique, I suppose, or one question I'd like to raise is if there's a luddite element to um to Khalili's critique of outsourcing luddite in what sense like in the sense that well i mean it's kind of you know it's it's an element i think because you know so she makes the case that these the consultants are kind of brought in as a way of um enforcing greater control over the workforce and introducing technology to displace labor so, you know, the the underlying assumption seems to be that there is no, you know, that it's always the displacement of labor by technology is generally a bad thing. Mm. That seems to me to be part of like um, the thrust of what she's saying. The, you know, if you kind of, if you, if you retro engineered or reverse engineered the kind of scenario that would be the opposite of the outsourcing world that we live in, it would be a world which would be kind of conservative with a small C, you know, from Khalili's point of view, kind of a small C conservative world with a large public sector, lots of kind of um, state management and state bureaucracy overseeing all sorts of processes that would, they would be confident and skilled, empowered, but perhaps also kind of, um, you know, kind of uh, lots of kind of make work schemes as well. Well, so um, I, I picked up on that element, hmm. and I, I mean, I, I agree that it's it's certainly there. Um, the one thing which I, I think should be said is all the so supposedly efficiency creating sackings that um, the consultants are brought in to advise on, um, you know, where they go and do an analysis of the whole company and find out who's doing what and figure out how many kind of supposedly redundant roles are there are and fire a bunch of people. Um, one, it's not entirely clear to what extent that is efficient. I mean, it's efficient in terms of um, extraction of surplus value, maybe, but it may not be efficient in terms of delivering services, which is really a problem when it comes to public service, when, which is supposedly not in the money business, but it's in the business of providing services to citizens. Um, so it's unclear exactly how you know truly efficient that actually is. Uh, and the other thing which has accompanied the growth of um, management consultancy and its role both in the private economy and in the and in pu the public sector is the way in which so many areas have become top heavy there's been you know and i don't mean the very top but the layer below that which is to say huge 
expansion in the number of managers in private education in the US, for example, there's a famous chart that went round about this, or in hospitals in the UK. And so for all that they're, you know, efficiency creating in terms of uh, getting rid of uh, frontline workers very often and cutting down cutting the, out those labor costs what it often leads to is also a huge accretion of management um in actual numbers right so you end up with this completely up you not a very pyramidal pyramidal pyramid like structure you get you know you get something which is um if not quite upside down one which is way too heavy on management and so this is one of another one of these kind of um, paradoxes of the growth of management consultancy yeah. I mean, so I guess this takes us to another question, which is, where does this, I suppose the reason I raise it is obviously not because, um, you know, I can see the argument about management consultants being used as part of, um, you know, very, very straightforward class struggle scenarios. I mean, Khalili talks about the London docks, the London and Liverpool docks being one area where McKinsey were brought in, in order to, um shift power away from the control the dockers had, um, you know, which over um, imports and, well, exports in particular in the UK. And so the introduction of containerization was driven partly by the need to get away from the dependence on this unruly labor force. But it's more, you know, that I think is straightforward and obvious. And that's a question, I suppose, it's a practical, concrete question of class struggle, union strength, um, and bargaining power in workplaces, as well as the political context. But the other aspect of it, I suppose, at the moment is there's so much of the debate is about, um, particularly in Europe, about low productivity. And historically, you know, the big picture, kind of the long decline of productivity growth um, in Western capitalism seems to be certainly one of the charges that you could lay at the at the feet of capitalism itself. And so I guess what I'm asking is, how do you, you know, that sh it seems to me that uh, Khalili in her, in her critique of outsourcing or the reliance on consultancy, um, she seems to be occluding that question. Because, you know, how do you deal with the fact that capitalism seems to have such difficulty at the moment, in fact, displacing labor in favor of technology and increasing productivity growth at the same time as you want to make the the case about the reliance on consultants to essentially hire and fire? So I just wanted to go back to the Luddite point, actually. I know I've missed the <clears throat> boat a little bit, but I, I'm, I, I, it just made me think that the if if you kind of mean Luddite as in um, that kind of, I guess, the popular usage, like destroy the tools, not question the, not blame the masters, then maybe there is a kind of, not necessarily in Khalidi's article, but in general critiques of um, consultancy in general, like that, that you might come across, there is a kind of Luddite element of the blame lies with the consultants, like the destroy the consultants, consultants are bad, consultants are dicks but actually i don't think that would be quite right i made this point earlier that like the the uh, the ultimate origin of the dependency on consultancy is not in the the strength of consultants but in the weakness of the state and that is something which doesn't start with consultants that's a much you know much um longer term process of state transformation you could say from nation states to member states there's you know several good books on on this kind of kind of stuff um and that's i think where you would try to get beyond the luddite critique and say well what is it that enables states to hollow themselves out rather than being hollowed out by consultants because it clearly is part of that 
that process of of them it's a it's account it's um substituting for something but i think it's the weakness in the in the origin not in the thing that's brought in that is where you should focus the critique perhaps well yeah, I think alex I think you want to come in yeah i think that's right i mean though you know it's there's obviously a tendency within within capitalism which is somewhat autonomous because who is meant to be holding the reins of the state jealously guarding its power and preventing it from becoming weak well there is no one i mean this you know the the, the fact is that even if you want to bring it down to personnel and look at the you know the power elite who is staffing the offices of state the clearly uh, article points this out quite well of the revolving door between say McKinsey and the state department or uh, various other branches of the state. Right. Um, and I think that, that kind of shows that it, it's kind of like, well, they're all, they're all in it together. Right. Um, and the, 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 the state isn't capitalist just because of the, um, just because of the personnel and the, and the revolving door. I mean, this is actually the subject of the famous kind of uh, intellectual Marxist debate in, in the, mid-century between Ralph Miliband and um, Nikos Polansas, and to a certain extent also by C. Wright Mills preceding that, who's saying that, you know, the state is capitalist because you have a revolving door. Um, the elites of major corporations are also the state elites, and they, you know, they they kind of each belong, have one foot in each camp, um, and Polansas pointing to a much more structural understanding. And I think, you know, here we can, I think the critique, our, the critique of it, I mean, we have, it has to cr be criticized but it needs to be one which doesn't fall into a moralizing trap of like the state should be strong. Who are you addressing that critique to? You know, who are you addressing the critique he, saying, hey, he, state, he's, don't he's be soft who, and weak? Are you saying who am I addressing that critique? Well, to? I'm it's just saying a, if we're, if we're making moral, this, I'm just saying we, in terms of phrasing this critique, critique. It's not a moral critique. It's not that the state should be strong. I think it's just a, you know, an attempt to work out what's the origin of the of the dynamic um no no which, I mean, which is right when, when, all i'm saying is that when you say you know state transformation yeah good when you say oh it's because the state the state is weak that suggests that there would be a kind of position of strong state and someone to implement that well i guess in the one hand like a, a, there is some value to a strong state in the absolute most abstract way because that is the collective power or the self-legislation that we all do um but no i do take your point it's like Oh, the state's weak, you know. So what? But maybe Not being pussies. Yeah, I mean, I'm calling out to any civil servants listening. Just go and lift. Just go and kind of get get hench. We need some strong civil servants. No, but just to like say, well, ultimately, how can you like even if you were to destroy the consultancy industry tomorrow, you wouldn't solve the problem. It's like the luddites. Right. If you were to destroy right. destroy all the the weaving, the spinning jennies and all that stuff, we're still in the same situation they were in. Um, yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think, and this is kind of what's missed out in these debates, um, you know, this, they're kind of the symptom of larger processes. And perhaps kind of addressing those larger processes requires targeting, you know, targeting the consultancies in as much as they are being targeted or identified. And, you know, I'm not going to lose any sleep at you know, if McKinsey's profits or Booz Allen and Hamilton loses some money as a result of, um, you know, kind of a public turn or greater skepticism about their services, I'm sure their profit margins will be fine, you know, at the end of the day. Um, but it's more the, you know, I mean, they're basically, you know, they're middlemen. They they skim off the top, right? There is There was this turn towards outsourcing um, and they made money off it. You know, that was, but the turn, they didn't cause the turn towards outsourcing. They merely were there to take advantage of it. I'm not sure the Miliband-Palantzis debate um, 
talking of elite university socialization and indoctrination. I don't know that takes us very far in getting to it, but you do make a good point, Alex, I suppose. And I suppose I would agree with George. If you're talking about this, you know, the state, you can differentiate, I suppose, between the bureaucratic capacity of the state, its bureaucratic institutions and structures, and the nature of the state as such in terms of its political and public authority. Do we have do we have representative power and authority um, at work in civil society? Is there a kind of expressed public will, um, which has the power to enforce its will as well? So it's not as if the questions of bureaucratic capacity and political power can be um, entirely pulled apart. They overlap, but they're nonetheless also distinct questions as well. Not least because obviously, um, you know, the bureaucratic, that bureaucratic power of the state can substitute and does substitute itself for the public power of the collective um, for the sovereignty. I think consultancy kind of attacks both of those in certain ways because it's like it it would be a way to kind of uh, reduce or like tie up or what's the word? Mend mend up or put a, a plaster over like a lack of bureaucratic capability but also it you know there is a political um effect as well like it is a a kind of a reducing of the um, legitimacy the authority of the state maybe maybe i'm maybe i'm i'm lapsing into that kind of social democratic or conservative critique that we had um before and it's more the externalization of a, a weakness is already there but i do take your you know your, i think that's a point well made phil that there is you know, and that's that was a, one of the points I made at the start that I think outsourcing, you, you know, it is you're talking about the, you know, you're talking about the state at one remove. So that's why these discussions are quite interesting, because it's all about what people think the state could or couldn't be or should or shouldn't be. But, but I think so, part of it is also if you're I mean, the, is that at, at the end of the day, you know, ultimately, if you're expecting the state to act in the interests of citizens. Um, ultimately, I think you're going to be disappointed because that's the nature of the capitalist state, that it, it doesn't serve us as masters. We, we're not the masters of it and, and, and won't ever be. So I think that there's, an, there's a, a critique to be made about, you know, in terms of- The critique of the capitalist state is to make it, is to make yourself the master. That's well, the point. In, well, indeed, but that will re- demand revolutionary change, not just a kind of um, some reforms that, or a changing of the guard, for that matter. And which is a lot, which is where the kind oh, of sure. social democratic critique um, always leads to. It's like, well, the state isn't serving us anymore. We need to go back to the days when it did in the 1950s or something. Um, yeah, I suppose. But the point is to be clear about the you know, there's a way in which these arguments about the. Um, these arguments about the state become effectively kind of Trojan horse arguments for neoliberalism, I think, um, in the sense that kind of, you know, the, or they, the idea that the state, that there's nothing worth kind of um, drawing lines over or battling over with respect to public power or um, public authority, or indeed state power and bureaucratic capacity, is in effect to surrender the very question of politics. And I no, think there I, I, is absolutely there can be a kind of quietistic thing like, well, we don't. Who cares yeah. if the state is incredibly corrupt? Um, we don't. We don't need to care about that at all because you know yeah. it's revolutionary yeah. or nothing. And I don't think we. You know, that's maybe possible in a proto-revolutionary situation, but that obviously isn't ours. So. 
Um, so, so I think there's obviously all these kind of democratic questions to be to be asked, and they should be asked. But this again kind of also ties into a discussion we've had, kind of a kind of running discussion. I think we also had it with Dylan Riley in, in the episode we did with him, which is to a certain extent a, a undoing of the legal, rational, bureaucratic state, an increasing turn towards uh, patrimonial, personalistic relations. And one could even see the kind of revolving door between civil servants and um, consultants as potentially part of that. I mean, certainly if, you know, uh, yeah, politicians are giving out contracts to their mates um, without a proper tender tendering process. And that becomes not just kind of the exception and a bit of corruption, which happens, which has always happened, but becomes the kind of the modal way of the, the state operating. Then that does say something about a decline of the state relative to whatever its 20th century peak, I guess, at least in terms of analyzing it as, as this kind of impersonal legal bureaucratic um, formation, which doesn't isn't dominated by personal personalistic relations. Yeah. And indeed that the populist kind of turn, you know, exacerbates those yeah. tendencies. I mean, I think it's a paradox that Khalili identifies, but didn't really draw out. So the fact the Trumpians, you know, kind of are a force to kind of reinforce, well, they reinforce the outsourcing because they can't rely on the deep state means that essentially they all they're doing is recreating neoliberalism, which is the very thing which they you know which is the well, which is what motivates the protest to begin with. We might suspect that that's what their point was all along. I mean, I don't mean to say that the voters who vote for for Trump as a protest vote um, intend, but that the Trump people um, maybe that's what they. I don't that's think they, they want. No, I don't. I don't think there was like. I mean, I think they're too confused, and or they were at least too confused and uh, lacking in idea. You know, I mean, some of them perhaps thought the market could be used to achieve their effects, or consultants could be used to achieve their effects. But I think it was probably just scrabbling around for whatever resources they had to hand to well, I, I, make I, thing make certain kinds of things happen. Well, just, they're just all, a, just you know, a they're all. Well, they're all sleazy businessmen, you know. Why wouldn't but Trump? But that's what I mean. Yeah, that, that's what I'm getting at. It's like they're like, no, we don't want to trust the the kind of uh, civil servant because they'll 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 like tie us in knots and and cut off our balls. No, we just need to go in and do stuff. And who, what do they do? Well, they rely on their mates and some de- you know d- do deals. That's what Trump's all about doing deals. Um, yeah. So you know, you, you call up your mates and go, hey man, I've got a deal for you. Um, I've got a contract for you. Can you do it? I don't want to give it to these other guys. Yeah. Indeed. So uh, just, I mean, I think uh, we can, there's a few more things I think are worth, um, or a couple more things that are worth addressing. Uh, I think just to be clear, so if we can, what's the difference then between the criticisms that are made of consultancy and outs- or outsourcing to consultants and the kinds of criticisms that or critiques that we discussed on the pod in other um, contexts about the critique of bullshit jobs um, the PMC and new cl- new class style analysis. You know that the problems are a new class of mandarins or whatever you, whatever there might be, new elite, whatever. I mean, is there is this is the debate about outsourcing to consultants? Is that another variation of those debates, or is it is there a kind of a a point to it that's distinct from these other debates? I don't um, see it as necessarily, it's not a million miles apart, but I don't see it as the same. I mean, if you're talking about PMC stuff, you're talking about, is there a new group or class which has power in society or in culture, in politics? In If you're talking about bullshit jobs, you're talking about 
I guess, capitalist stagnation and the economy. And if you're talking, as I said before, about consultancy, I think you're really talking about um, about the state and about kind of organisational logics within No, that. but is consultancy a make-work scheme for the middle classes? You know, I mean, I'm sure like it's a huge bureaucratic boondoggle, right? There's lots of papers, there's lots of PowerPoint slides, there's lots of meetings, there's lots of pointless meetings. And, you know, like, and I'm sure lots of, a lot of it is meaningless. Like, you know, it's I, the I, stuff I, that I could be done in-house, but isn't. I, I would propose I, that it's purposive bullshit. So it might have same, some of the same qualities as bullshit jobs, but it has like, you know, consultants are <laughs> expected to do something. And even if the, the, the means are bullshit and the consequences are fairly bullshit, it's not the same because it's, uh, it's um, purposive bullshit. I mean, I think the, the and the big the big consultants are higher up in the you know the, the the food chain than you know your your bullshit jobs. In fact, maybe the manage the, the management consultants come in and end up creating a whole layer of <laughs> of additional um, bullshit jobs. But oh, sure, but, the wheel spins, but, right? Right, but the but the but I think the issue is that especially kind of the, the big the big management consultancies and the kind of leadership echelons of that. I mean, they are the power elite. They're not bullshit jobs they are um you know the people who are in power or no, who, who are you know the rotating door etc which is different to yeah but you're talking about the man you're talking about the partners right whereas they will have lots of flunkies and functionaries and eager young kind of junior staff who will effectively surely be in bullshit jobs a huge paper shuffling machine make work scheme for graduates from elite universities yeah, no, I think that I think that's right. I think that's but I wanted to make precisely that distinction, which is that, you know, the partners, that's a fairly large section of that company, right? They're fairly like top heavy, loads of people make partner. Um, and that's a different um a different order to all the all the kind of paper pushers all across, you know, the civil service, private industries, in both in smaller companies, especially in large uh, large, you know, corporate bureaucracies. Um, and I think so. Anyway, I, I don't think they're the categories. It's not a it's not a full circle, right? It's a kind of Venn diagram, um, where you know the, I think the are the, are the kind of man, the managing partners of McKinsey bu- kind of bullshit jobs. I mean, we would say that they're bullshit, but they're not the bullshit jobs thing in terms of just pure make work. Um, they are instrumental for power in some sense. Yeah, well, I guess, I mean, they own, you know, they're probably, even if they work, you know, they're genuinely kind of capitalists in the old-fashioned proprietary sense. Um, So, I mean, to that degree, I suppose you could see them, uh, you know, as distinct from the vast swathes of kind of corporate middlemen. Yeah. Maybe there's a part of me that thinks like Taylorism or like the scientific approach to management has something to it in terms of if you were organizing production, you would do it in the most efficient way. You would you would not necessarily use Taylorist like methodology, but there would be there would be some application of like of, of reason to this. And that's you know, I don't know. I just can't fully. But the, but the bottom line I, I is profit, right? The bottom line yeah. is profit. It's not a production. Right, production happens or doesn't happen, whether it produces profit or not. Um, so you know you don't want it, these organizations don't have to be efficient in terms of um, delivering something to someone other than profit. You know, um, George wants the, to go back to the nineteen twenties Leninist Taylorism. It yeah. was famously Vladimir Vladimir Ilyich who brought Taylorism to the Soviet Union, much to the horror of uh, the left wing of the Bolshevik Party. 
the PMC hated it. Um, <laughs> they had to do some work. No, I just, I think, I can't fully ex- express it, but there is some kind of, like, a true bullshit job is one that has no, like, has a, has no connection to productivity, to profit. It is just, like, keeping the, the kid busy with the, with the toy. This is, like, you have to have a certain like level you have to have a certain quality and number of slides in the slide deck that's never read that justifies the decision that's already being made so it's right. not yeah well fully keeping the kid occupied with the toy it's like giving the kid something which is fairly difficult sorry apologies if anyone is like a first or second year management consultancy um starter but please do let us know if this picture um corresponds to to your experience but i just think there is a qualitative difference it's i'm not fully pre- prepared to say that is bullshit. So I know we've got some. I know we've got some people who work for some of the big outsourcing, uh, some of the big four, big three. You know, whether you're talking in terms of accountancy, professional services, or consultancy. I know we have some listeners um, in that in that industry. So um, please do let us know what you think, and if you have any pictures, slide decks, you know, all the rest of it. Like I said at the start, please do send them in. Um, a question to finish, which is to. Um, circle back to uh, the Khalili essay because she finishes on a question which I thought was interesting, which is the city called Neom, uh, hopefully I pronounced it right, which is part of Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, um, a de facto dictator of Saudi Arabia. He runs Saudi Arabia, though he's not the king. Um, as part of his kind of technocratic modernization of the country, he's investing an enormous amount of resources as both kind of literal and metaphorical kind of literal amounts of investment as well as um, political capital is being sunk into this city, which is going to be a, as far as I understand it, from what I've seen reported about it in the FT and other newspapers, it's going to be this eco-friendly, you kind of, but at the same time, kind of green utopian horizontal city in the desert. And um, the reason it's brought up in the Khalili Review is because it's obviously a huge boondoggle for all the various consultancies, including McKinsey, that have descended on Saudi Arabia in order to kind of help um, decide and, you know, put together the people, buy in, get buy in to um, uh, MBS's modernization of the Saudi state, MBS's kind of technocratic plans for this city, building the city itself, bringing in various kind of companies and industries and generally coordinating and organizing it. And there's a few things I suppose worth saying. The first is it's the classic kind of Gulf monarchy thing is um, the sheer amount of kind of wealth which uh, they've got through oil rents mean there is this um, dependence on external kind of uh, sources in order to do your work for you, whether it's the kind of the cheap labor from South Asia, Southeast Asia to build the big football stadiums, whether it's the Americans to basically run your military for you, as is the case of Saudi Arabia, or um, in the case of the Saudi state, like some of the ministries are called the Ministry of McKinsey, according to Khalili, simply because they basically run, you know, for um, by these consultancies. But the bigger question is this Neom project. And again, if any listeners have any kind of have um, seen or heard anything about it, I'd be very interested to hear more about it. What strikes me is why, how is it that it's in a situation where we have consultancies in an authoritarian oil kingdom um, involved in the, you know, this kind of what sounds by all accounts, this kind of insane, insanely um, 
technotopian vision of a new urban project, a new urban vision? Why is it happening there? And why is it so reliant on consultants, I suppose, to get it done? Some of the points that Khalili mentions, for instance, is that it's going to be kind of, um, you know, there'll be flying taxis, um, robot services, robot robotized public services, um, hologram teachers and lecturers. So total replacement for me. Um, and who knows what will happen to podcasters? Well, I mean, th- so there's... Um... It kind of like the resource curse, right? Which is often used as an explanation and an argument for why certain countries don't develop. Um, we've discussed this with regard to Nigeria on a not on a podcast already this year, um, but you know Saudi Arabia is rarely talked about in those terms. And in fact, now it's started to use to leverage its oil wealth into actually, um, you know, as, as Phil just said, kind of modernizing the state and, and society. Um, and you know, it's buying up of the game of golf and the game of football um, in you know in 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 the stuff which has been in the headlines over the recent months um, is I think also kind of testament to that certainly as a kind of, um, you know, more of a PR maneuver, which no doubt also has used consultants, um, you know, to appeal to Western audiences. But, you know, the West is merely consumer here, um, whereas what's really going on is the story of the decline of the West and the shift to the East and Saudi Arabia being one of those players. But I think, you know, the role of consultants in this is partly a reflection of the fact that it doesn't have to worry about efficiencies, efficiency in terms of, um just financial efficiency, because it has so much to throw around, it can just kind of go, yeah, here, I, we don't care if you overbill us, we've got bucket loads more cash where that came from. So we don't have to con- concern ourselves with these things that, you know, Western uh, states do or should be. Um, of course, the the Western concern, Western states concern with efficiency at the level of running the state kind of only runs one way, right? Um, it's um, no goodies for you, citizens, but you know all the goodies for for the consultants. Um, but anyway, I think I, I don't know if it goes much beyond what Phil has already said in terms of them need to basically import a civil service. Um, that it's this kind of ridiculously structured state which has gone through a process of development which has been very rapid, but also to a certain extent short circuited, um, and doesn't have you know. Uh, doesn't have well the Saudi Arabia does have a domestic working class in the way that the kind of other Gulf states don't and had to import them wholesale though Saudi Arabia has also had to um, engage in a lot of that um, but hiring the consultants is also just kind of importing a civil service right and having the money to kind of just go well it doesn't really it doesn't really matter um, it does, you know that we're overpaying for this yeah I mean I, I don't have too much to add I was just thinking about like <clears throat> If, you know, this idea that a a camel is a horse designed by a committee is like a line, a city designed by consultants. I don't know. It's just, it's like, it's a good kind of, there's something, I can't quite express it, but something that I find that quite um, illustrative. I guess, you know, just to find, you know, is this a good model for consultancies? Because in the sense of, yeah, you can kind of go to that teat, but the whole I think part of that that we talked about that hollowing out process is if you're like if you're going to give um, domestic governments like uh, good value initial contracts that is part of keeping them uh, requiring your services in the future so if all the consult I'm just kind of imagining all the consultants in the world go to uh, Saudi Arabia what would what what um what would happen then but I think that's probably getting a bit ahead of ourselves 
Well, that's George consulting the consultants. <laughs> you got to get one step, one step up, get ahead of the game. Nice, well played. Anyway, listeners, um, as uh, Phil has been saying throughout, do let us know what you think. If you have um, kind of some exposure yourself to, to these industries, um, have some insight, or you think we've mischaracterized what's going on, do let us know. Um, but uh, in general, let us know what you thought of this. Um, thank you for being a subscriber to Bunga Cast. Thanks for listening. Remember to rate and review the podcast and uh, tell your friends. Catch you later. Bye-bye. Thank you.